I'm going to ask you now, we're going to launch into a new series called Post Tenebrous Lux, which means after darkness light. And we're going to be there for eight weeks as we discuss a very significant change in the church that happened 500 years ago and we're forever impacted by it. So we're going to turn to the book of John and we'll be in John here in a moment. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, we want you to make sure and have one in your hands. The ushers are coming down now. You just simply put your hand up and and they will offer you a Bible and it can be yours to keep if you wish. Uh, So we're going to be in the book of John, first chapter. and, And like I said, we'll be there in a moment. So, 500 years ago, something happened that, quite frankly, changed the history of the church. But in order to understand that moment that happened 500 years ago, I need to go about 1,000 years ahead of that. You see, in, in the first 300 years of the church... You know, Christ ascends into heaven. He empowers his disciples to go out and make disciples of all nations. We do so by the power of the Holy Spirit, which we read about through the book of Acts last year. So for 300 years, the church grew exponentially, but they did so by one key strategy. Do you know what that strategy is? Persecution. It actually became what the enemy intended for harm actually became the greatest tool for the church and its growth in the first 300 years because there were so many different angles of people from Judaizers to those who were a part of, of the Roman government to those of uh, mysterious religions of different kinds who did not like this new movement because they saw that it had power and it was indeed changing lives. So there was much effort that was made to stamp it out. In fact, in the first generation of believers post the ascension of Christ, a Caesar named Nero was basically annihilating the church through mass killings, mass crucifixions, and mass burnings at the stake of people who declared their faith in Jesus Christ. Again, what the enemy meant for harm was bringing about good because guess what happened? If your life was at stake for returning to Jesus Christ, then it meant that if you were going to put your life at risk, that you were all in on your faith. And when somebody's all in on their faith, it changes them and it highlights very clearly the transformative life through Jesus Christ. And it has a ripple effect. And, and so what happened was, as the more people they tried to kill um, to stamp out Christianity, the more people were drawn to why would people be willing to give up their lives for a man named Jesus Christ. Over time, this impacted pretty much the known world to where it culminated in the moment where Rome was actually conquered by Christianity in A.D. 324 without one use of the sword. This sword, yes, but not with the sword that cuts. You see, it was in A.D. 324 where Caesar, we would know him as Constantine, declared himself a follower of Jesus Christ. Constantine, who had been a believer prior to this moment because he had been impacted by the teachings of many of the martyrs, perhaps as he was growing up, seeing so many of them martyred and being, you know, 
curious, why would they do that? Well, over time, the teachings were affecting him, and eventually it came the moment where he was willing to admit and declare that he himself was a follower of Jesus Christ. As a result, in a single moment, Rome went from being an adversary to the gospel to being the promoter of the gospel. Rome became the advocate for the Christian faith, and, and Augustine created rules by which the faith could flourish. He didn't outlaw other religions, but he protected the Roman government from other religions by saying, you cannot offer sacrifices to any other god on behalf of the name of Rome other than to honor and glorify Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So he gave freedom of religion, but said that there was only one religion by which the Rome, Roman state would honor, and that would be the Christian faith. Can you imagine this world power that now this world leader is declaring a religion that had once been so vehemently opposed is now embraced fully to the top. It caused the faith of Christianity to spread throughout the globe. It caused from what was primarily around the Middle Eastern and the Mediterranean areas to now it was reaching Asia and Northern Europe and places in Africa that had never been touched by the gospel because Rome had been converted. Then the year after the declaration of Constantine, a very significant moment happened. The Nicene Creed was written. The Nicene Creed was an establishment of what the church finds and believes as being fundamental in theology. Basically saying, these are the majors of our faith. You, many of you grew up in a very traditional church where the Nicene Creed was quoted weekly. Some of you grew up, or maybe it was in special moments where the Nicene Creed was quoted. There are actually several, uh, several different versions in English of the Nicene Creed, but I want to read one of them this morning for you to see just how fundamental this creed was that was established right after Constantine decided that the Christian faith was indeed symbolizing of Rome. Here we go. First, it says this, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the begotten of God, the Father, the only begotten that is of the essence of the Father. God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten and not made, of the very same nature of the Father, by whom all things came into being in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Who for us humanity, uh, who for us uh, humanity and for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate, was made human, was born perfectly of the Holy Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit, by whom he took body, soul, and mind, and everything that is man, truly and not in semblance. He suffered, was crucified, was buried, rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven with the same body, and sat at the right hand of the Father. He is to come with the same body and with the glory of the Father to judge the living and the dead. Of his kingdom there is no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit and the uncreated and the perfect Spirit who spoke through the law, prophets, and gospels, who came down upon the Jordan, preached through the apostles, and lived in the saints." 
We believe also in the one universal apostolic holy church. In one baptism in repentance for the remission and forgiveness of sins. And in the resurrection of the dead. In the everlasting judgment of souls and bodies. And the kingdom of heaven. And in everlasting life. Oh come on now. This was written how many years ago? A.D. 325. And this has formed the understanding of the Christian movement all these years. All of that was because of the beautiful transformation of Rome that would have never been considered in the time of the apostles, but it had become a realization that even Rome could not withstand and stand against the movement of God's Spirit. How beautiful that season was. And as a result of this amazing transformation, then the church went from being centralized in Jerusalem to being centralized in Rome. This was not a bad thing, as it allowed for the opportunity, because it was Rome where all peoples of the earth would come. And, and so they were able to take this center, central uh, understanding and belief within Roman society and take it to the far reaches of the world. And the gospel exponentially grew into those other places of the world than if it had stayed in Jerusalem. So this was good. But like anything else, when mankind's a part of something, over time, something can corrupt. So while the papacy had definitely taken center stage, and it was a good thing for many generations, from A.D. 891 to 1046, a significant, lengthy season of corruption happened within the papacy. Many different popes had operated with not the best interests of the church. And during this time, the church became solidified with the government. They were one and the same. This idea of theocracy where a government is also the church sounds great, except for the government is filled with people who aren't full of faith. And so when you have government officials who are not full of faith are being advocates for that faith, what happens? The faith gets distorted. And thus began the dark ages of the church. Medieval times, if you will. The dark ages of the church was not good. As the church lost its passion, it lost its barometer, it lost its center on the true north of Jesus Christ. And forever began to, not forever, but within that season time, began to struggle with the understanding of who they were in Christ and what the true essence of the church was to be about. The church switched from being a revolutionary movement that conquered Rome through not the sword of, that cuts the human flesh, but the sword that cuts to the spirit, the word of God. It had moved from that to being that of the actual sword that cuts the flesh. You see, up until this point in time, the church did not grow by forcing fear upon those to either bend the knee or suffer the death penalty. No, the church changed because it changed hearts and minds. That's how it grew. But during the dark ages, the church stopped growing. And it's no mistake that it's also at that time that it tried to advance its word through the sword. Persecution being the use. I mean, after all, think about it. The first 300 years of the church, it grew by persecution. 
So the adversary of the church grew by persecution because the church used the wrong sword. The dark ages were now becoming deeply entrenched. As time went on, the papacy began to try to unify control where it had full control of the advancement of the gospel. They made a decision that was cataclysmic to the Christian faith. This single decision may have been done the most damage to the Christian faith than any other decision in the history of the church. And it was this. When they chose to say that Scripture is only to be written in Latin and it's only to be taught in Latin. The reason why that was the most significant decision in the history of the church to harm it was because Latin was not the spoken language of the people. It's one thing to have the written word in Latin. It's another thing then to have that word read and not have it translated into the common tongue of the listener. That decision was made during this dark age. And, and so imagine for centuries, centuries, the church only heard the word in Latin, a tongue that they did not know. Imagine what would happen to the church if you did not know what Scripture actually taught, if it was inaccessible to you. Imagine what would happen. Now, last Sunday, I enjoyed my time in the Spanish church. It was beautiful. But I have to be honest, I couldn't understand a lick they were saying. They were speaking in Spanish. They were delightful. As we were listening to the sermon, I was shaking my head in agreement. I had no idea what I was agreeing to. Now, as pleasant of an experience as it was, and I had an interpreter in my ear, but I had to pull it out at several times. It just wasn't working for me. But there was, there was just this idea that it's like, you know what? If I stayed here, and I did not have a translator. What would happen to me over time if I only heard the word of God taught and read in Spanish? I, I would grow cold. I would grow ignorant. I would start being my own authority because I didn't have any other authority to speak into my life. I would only be able to understand and discern what is right and wrong based on my own whims of thought. Because there's no count or accountability towards me. Imagine if that could happen to me if I just say stayed in that church for three years with no interpretation. Imagine what happened to the entire church when the entire church, the entire church across all nations were kept in the dark. Because it was all spoken in Latin, not their own tongue. As a result, as you would expect, the church became ignorant and it became dependent upon the edicts of the Pope and the priest. So when the scriptures were finished, being read and taught, then the edicts would come and the edicts would be in the common language of the people. The people would have to assume that those edicts were biblical but they didn't have anything accessible to them to know if it was biblical or not. So this ignorant, independent church became dark just by the mere lack of the word of God. 
This statement was stated about this season of time by somebody who wrote notes in study of this. And they said the power of the clergy over the ignorant people had become far greater than it ought to have been. The popes had supreme power on earth. From all quarters of the world, cries for reform were raised. And a reform was speedily to come. At this point, I would like to go to that passage in John chapter 1. Because I believe that this speaks to, if you take away the word of God, the only thing you have left to replace it is darkness. And when there's darkness, the sense of knowing where to go and how to go is not accessible. And therefore, devastating results can be. So in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, in this text, it clearly is talking about, if you read on, which we will, it's speaking of Jesus. So, in the beginning was the Word, Jesus. And the Word, Jesus, was with God. And Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Jesus, all things were made. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. In Jesus was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Now, if I had just spoken that in Latin, would you be blessed in this moment? No. You'd be like, I have no clue what he just said. You might have nodded because you like the energy of my voice. But you would be ignorant. You would have no idea what was just stated that could have blessed you and that you would have needed. But what is being taught here is the very essence of the word, what we call the word of God, the scriptures. The very essence of that was a living person in Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, there is actually life. And there is life because there is light. Without Jesus being known and understood, we would be in darkness. And therefore, there wouldn't be life to be experienced between us. But again, I can say that and you can understand it because I have just spoken in your tongue. What if I had not? You'd be missing out on what I'm saying next. Because as you continue through this text, let's read in verses 6 to 8, where it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all might believe. All, he himself was not that light. He came as only a witness to that light. This is the first time in the book of John where it is stating the connection that you and I are actually intended to be witnesses to a light for the sake of other people. 
Remember what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He says, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. We are meant to be the light of Christ to a dark world. But you and I would not be able to exude life unless we had life in Christ. And then the life of Christ becomes the light through us by which others are called into that same relationship. But again, you wouldn't know it if I had just spoken to you in Latin. Continuing on in the text, where it says in verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. You have just been declared that if you've been drawn by God in a relationship with him through Jesus Christ, that you are now heirs of the kingdom of heaven. You are children of God. Does that not encourage your soul to know that God has done all of this work through his son Jesus Christ so that you can become an adopted son or daughter of God? Could you imagine if I just spoken that in Latin? You'd be lost without that encouraging word. And then if I had spoken in Latin and, and then I taught it from Latin and then at the end I would just provide a new edict from the, from the Pope, what would you have gained? Not a whole lot, but what would you have lost? A lot. Something significant that could have affected your whole life. So here's the truth of the matter. If you cannot read about Jesus and you cannot hear about Jesus, then you will be ignorant of the light of Jesus that exposes the truth of your life and the truth of the world around you. And therefore, you'll have no life. If you take away the word of God being taught to you in your, your native tongue, if you take away the scriptures being right there in your hands and your tongue, then you will be ignorant and you will have no understanding whatsoever of your condition and your need of Jesus and how Jesus then can be that bridge to reconcile you to God the Father. Centuries. I can't say it enough. Centuries of no message read from this word. Can you imagine the state of the church? I can't fathom it. Especially when I live in a country where we can only claim two and a half centuries of age. When you go to Europe, then you can start seeing centuries. I stood next to an aqueduct that was built in 1 AD by the Romans. That blew my mind. I'm standing and touching a 2,000-year-old structure. I don't get that. That's beyond my comprehension, being from a country that is as young as our country. But if you just took the age of the United States, 200-plus years, 
and you were to say, what if the United States went through just our lifetime without the word of God being written in English, without a message being spoken in English, what would the state of the church be today? I don't, it's so dark to even consider that, that I, I don't even want to fathom it, to be honest. That is why when you come to this church, we are committed to the teachings of scriptures because the scripture is the authority to where life can be pointed to and understood. Not me alone as pastor. Not any elder, not any of our other pastoral team members, or any of the other great pastors in this area. Without the word of God, we would all be flying blind. The church is in need of the word of God. The living word of God found in Jesus Christ alone. Centuries of nothing but Latin. But then a man named Luther Martin Luther, who was a priest of the Catholic Church, and on October 31st, 1517, walked out the church he was serving in, went out to that front door, and posted a piece of paper that was at 95 points, or as we know it as the 95 Thesis, that states the concern that he has for the church. He did so at the risk of, his own, of himself, but he knew that it was necessary for the church to discover life again. Something radical has to happen. Within this document, it condemns the use of indulgences. That being a tool by which if you were concerned about a loved one who has passed from this life, if you thought, you know what, there wasn't much Christian about them, and so maybe we need to somehow, I can't bear the thought of them being in outer darkness for eternities, so is there a way we can move them from here to the light of heaven? Sure, the church created it. This idea that if you pay the right amount of money, if you offer the right amount of prayers, they can move from hell to heaven. And then over time, they were able to take those same indulgences and say, you know what? If you've sinned greatly, then you can do the same thing for yourself. If you pay the right amount of money and you pray the right amount of prayers, you can move from not being reconciled with God to being reconciled. How else can you fathom these expensive cathedrals in the Vatican having been built? in a time when there wasn't much money in the world. It was on the backs of people that thought, in order to be reconciled with God, they needed to pay the price out of pocket. Luther was messing with the purses of the church. And he himself was not anti-Catholic. In fact, he was wanting to see the Catholic church redeemed and discover its original intent, its pure form that for several centuries it was led from Rome in a pure form, led by the power of God. There were many popes who were doing their due duties in the manner that God had intended. So he moves on, not only condemning indulgences, but he confronts the biblical validity of the idea of purgatory. Where do you get that? A common people received the idea of purgatory because they were told by edict this was so, but they didn't have the scriptures to confront the idea. He also, in the same text of the 95 Thesis, highlights the priesthood of the believer, which says that each 
person who is a child of God can pray directly to God himself. Each person can actually confess to God the sins of their life without the needs of another. It doesn't mean that we can't have some direct parallel confession to one another because scripture actually asks us to do that. But we still have the opportunity and the privilege to go before God himself. He also emphasizes salvation by grace through faith, not by works. You're like, well, of course, that's in Scripture. But for centuries, they did not know this. And so they were taught that the way you get yourself right with God is pay out money and to pray certain prayers and to do certain kind acts. What are all those things together? The works of man. Saying that you can be saved through your own merits. But we know because we have the word written in English and taught to you in English that Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 says, Salvation's by grace through faith alone, not by works so that no man can boast. You know that because you've been in the church that reads it in your tongue. But they didn't know that for centuries. And so for centuries, they practiced works as a means to be right with God. And lastly, as part of the 95 Thesis, he multiple times states the importance and the centrality of the Word of God. The Word of God needs to be in the hands of the common people, where they can read it with their own eyes, where they can hear it taught in their own tongue. At this moment, on October 31st, 1517, an ignorant church was about to be enlightened. And they were going to be enlightened, not by a man, but by the word of God in their hands. I thank God that that is so. Hallelujah. Greetings. I am Martin Luther. I was born on November 10th, 1483, to Hans and Margarita Luther in the town of Eiselben, Germany. My father... He owned and operated a copper mining company. My mother, she was a modest, God-fearing woman who was loved and revered by other women because of her virtues. As a child, I attended the Catholic parish school, and I was known by my friends there as being filled with both the joy of life and my parents' anger. At 17 years of age, I entered the University of Erfurt. And within four years, I had received my Master of Arts degree. And in keeping with my father's wishes, I enrolled in law school. On July 2nd, 1505, at 21 years of age, an incredible event radically changed the direction of my life. Having just visited my parents, I was returning to the university when I got caught in a terrible thunderstorm. I couldn't find any cover, and this powerful bolt of lightning struck right near me and threw me to the ground. At that moment, I cried out, Help me, St. Anne! I'll become a monk! Well, having my life spared, I left the university within a week. And in spite of my parents' protests, I entered the Augustinian Monastery. Two years later, I was ordained a priest and began studying theology. 
Five years later, I received my doctorate in theology and became the professor of theology at the University of Wittenberg. But during my years of studying and, and teaching, I, I found myself searching harder and deeper for peace within my soul. I, I spent more and more time studying the Bible. And during an intensive study of the book of Romans, I finally began to understand what it meant to receive salvation and righteousness as a gift from God. In the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. The righteous will live by faith. Romans 1:17. But all around me, people were far from repenting of their sins or accepting God's free gift of salvation. The practice of selling letters of indulgence. Well, it was commonly exercised to help raise funds to support the extravagance of the papal court. And along with these useless pieces of paper, people were told that they could buy forgiveness for past, present, and future sins. I was infuriated by these deceptions, and I vowed, God willing, I will punch a hole in this drum. Well, then came October 31st, 1517, 500 years ago. It was a day that became known as one of the most important days in all of Protestant church history. It was the day that I, Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk, a professor of theology, posted on the doors of the cathedral at Wittenberg, Germany, my 95 thesis. My complaints against the practices and the teachings of the medieval Roman church. And with this daring action, the 16th century Protestant Reformation was born. The Reformation movement was built on these three main tenets. The reestablishment of the authority of the scriptures as the indisputable word of God. The clarification of salvation based on the grace of God received through repentance of sin and confession of faith in Christ and not through good works or the purchase of letters of indulgence. And the restoration of congregational singing. You see, there was no congregational singing as you have it today at the beginning of the Reformation. As a young child, I grew up listening to my mother sing. And often, my volcanic emotions would erupt in singing. I sang in the church choir, became proficient at the flute. So when the Reformation began, I was determined to restore congregational singing to the German church. And so I began writing songs and working with skilled musicians to create new music to which people could worship. I often borrowed tunes from popular secular melodies for my hymns, and I often received criticism for the same. The enemies of the Reformation, they tried in vain to stop the congregational singing, but they might as well have tried to stop the waves of the sea. In defense of my strong conviction for the power of sacred music, I said, if any man despises music, 
as all fanatics do. For him, I have no liking. For music is a gift from God, not an invention of men. Thus, it drives out the devil and makes people cheerful. The devil, the originator of sorrowful anxieties and restless troubles, flees before the sound of music, almost as much as before the word of God. I would allow no man to preach or teach God's people without a proper understanding of the power and the use of sacred song. Well, most of the 36 hymns that I wrote, they've long since been forgotten. But one of my hymns became the rallying cry of the Reformation. Remains a church classic even today. It is based on Psalm 46, 1 to 3. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way and the mountain falls into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake at their surging. Come, friends, let us listen to the 46th Psalm. The years following 1517 were turbulent ones as the Roman church tried to silence me. They accused me of heresy and asked me to recant. Finally, in January 1521, the Pope excommunicated me from the church and summoned me to a hearing at the Imperial Diet of Worms. At the hearings, I was asked to recant of all my writings and teachings, to which I shouted, Unless I am proved by Scripture, I do not accept the authorities of popes and councils. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant of anything, for to go against my conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. At the conclusion of the hearings, I was declared an outlaw, which meant that anyone could kill me without fear of punishment. I was granted safe passage by a group of friends to the castle at Wartburg. Here I went into exile and translated the Bible from the original Greek into the German language, so that the common people could read and understand God's word for themselves. The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs to me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. So, in English, from an English translation to an English-speaking audience, I conclude with this verse out of John 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
We stand on the backs of many who for the cost of their own lives gave us the privilege to read and hear and speak that which can change our lives and enlighten us to the truth of who we are in Christ and to the truth of who Christ is. To that which comes before us, I say thank you, but glory to God the Father for his change. Amen.